Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Pink Sheets Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin-Smith, senior editor Kathy Kelly, and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. Today is July 8th, 2022. We're glad to be back after an extended break. I think we can call that our summer hiatus. Yeah, why not? And now we're ready to talk. Now that we're ready to talk again, there's some exciting FDA and pharma news to consider. First up is the largest, the latest iteration of the drug pricing bill from Senate Democrats. Kathy, what changes did you find in this version? Well, there are a few, um, and you know, but basically the the bill, which was released earlier this week by the Senate Finance Committee, she said, um, you know, includes the basic framework that was passed by the House in 2021 as part of the Build Back Better bill. Um, that includes as sort of the centerpiece, the direct price negotiation between HHS and manufacturers for selected single source extended monopoly drugs covered by Medicare parts B and D, the rebate penalties for Medicare B and D drugs whose prices increase faster than inflation, a redesign of the part D benefit and a cap on beneficiary out-of-pocket spending and repeal of the Trump era rebate reform rule. Um, but as you said, there are some revisions in this latest version. One is a possible two-year reprieve from negotiation for biologics that have biosimilars pending. That provision is really aimed at trying to, you know, encourage development of biosimilars. Um, but ironically, this likely means that Humira will be exempt from negotiation, even though that drug is the poster child <laughs> for the abuses that the, the bill is targeting. Um, there are also adjustments in the implementation timelines. For example, you know, HHS's selection of drugs for negotiation will begin in 2023. Discounts go into effect in 2026. Um, insulins are no longer treated separately in this version, which means that insulins likely will make up a good number of the Part D drugs, potentially displacing others you know, that are chosen for negotiation the first couple of years anyway. The, the new bill also sets the specific number of drugs to be selected by the secretary annually. For example, 10 in the first year, 15 in the second year. Previously, um, the legislation gave the secretary more discretion, saying uh, up to 10 or 15, whatever the number, you know, could be selected. The change, I think, is to ensure that negotiation continues as designed under future administrations that may be less committed <laughs> to the to the process. The, the negotiation provision has been described by analysts in the past as manageable for biopharma, and mainly that's because it's relatively narrowly drawn and does not impose controls on launch prices. Um, you know, the theory is that manufacturers might respond by just increasing launch prices in the future as like a hedge against later controls, you know, if the legislation passes. On the other hand, you know, if the legislation passes, it's, Medicare... It's very price, interesting. Um, yeah. I, I guess, and, and maybe this is just because, uh, you know, I follow the regulatory side more than the, than the pricing side of this, but I, I was uh -huh. I was a little surprised that, that biosimilars like actually got their own little section in there, um, you know, with the delay to negotiations. I mean, it 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 seems like they're just assuming the market is going to kind of, you know, do its thing and and work and you know work on the prices those biologics, you know, naturally. But I mean, was there any kind of 
inkling that something like this could go in and you know before i mean did somebody like make a proposal that that this one just kind of it kind of just made it into this version of it or did this come out of left field yeah well you know um the association for accessible medicines made has has you know kind of conducted a pretty big lobbying initiative you know opposing this bill remember they came out sort of surprisingly Set, you know, saying that the the legislation, the, the negotiation will severely undercut the opportunity for generics and biosimilars, and you know they oppose that. And I think this, although it's not specifically what they proposed, and in fact AAM still opposes this bill, <laughs> I think it's an attempt to address some of those concerns. So we'll see, but you know. Uh, I was going to say if if this legislation passes, even if you know it's not as terrible for for the industry, um, you know as as has been sort of threatened, um, it it will put Medicare price negotiation on the books, and that you know could mean in the future that it could be expanded and you know uh, could address many more drugs, you know or um, other situations. So it is it is a concern, I would say. It's an unsettling prospect for the industry going forward. Yes, the other thing I was curious about was the uh, <clears throat> taking out the up to um, the number of of drugs you had to you had to negotiate. Are they, are they really worried that someone's not going to do this <laughs> to say like, oh, we're only negotiating one. You said up to 10. We're only doing one. Yeah, you know? <laughs> I, I think so. I mean, what you know, if there's a Republican administration, I could see that they would be less committed. I mean, it's hard to know for sure, but I think that's a concern. You know, you would think that any administration would be interested in in the savings that could be derived from you know price negotiation, but um, I guess there is a concern that, for example, a Republican administration might not be as committed. <laughs> so, I like that word, committed. <laughs> so uh kathy any sense of the uh the prospects uh you know the prospects seemed uh uh pretty good sort of kind of uh you know immediately sort of kind of post uh um uh post the beginning of the biden administration and this congress and then sort of kind of uh you know things uh um things sort of kind of went off the rails with the uh democratic legislative agenda is there a uh, a sense that this now sort of kind of has uh um you know, has the mansion cinema sort of uh, um, uh, stamps of approval uh, that it needs to to sort of kind of move uh, move forward? You know, it's hard to say. I think those those things are still being worked out. I mean, obviously, the reconciliation bill has other provisions, you know, some tax provisions, climate control. So I, I think that's still an open question. But something else has emerged, which is kind of interesting. Um, apparently, um, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has threatened to withhold support from a separate bill. The, the, this is the legislation that has to do with boosting U.S. competitiveness with China. Um, Republicans are threatening to withhold support from that bill if the drug pricing provisions go ahead in reconciliation. <laughs> um, we'll see, you know, how serious that threat is, but. Um, you know, the, it was even acknowledged by uh, a statement from the White House last week. Um, and, you know, McConnell 
successfully block progress of drug pricing legislation during the Trump administration. So, you know, he's he's stepping up again. He's been a pretty reliable ally for the drug industry. So that's something to watch, too. Yeah, I saw one like investor note this week put it at maybe as high as 70% chance that this goes through, but it's, I don't know, I just find it's really hard in Washington and especially with a Congress that's this, um, where the majority is so slim to basically non-existent for anybody to really know how things, if something is going to happen until it happens, especially because the reconciliation process is more complicated in some ways than passing a normal bill. You know, you need to get this approval of every provision by the parliamentarian. There's probably going to be some other non-drug pricing stuff in there that could add to complications. So I just feel like it's it's one of those things you can never quite um, get too confident about until it's actually signed into law. And plus, they're running out of time. I mean, they're going to go they're going to go on recess in August, and then <clears throat> when they come back, it's going to be full campaign mode. And you know, I mean, they're already talking you know, they're likely to not get much done after that. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's you know, well, we got three weeks left maybe yeah. to get this done. And there's other legislation that they have to do, which, you know, namely the user fee bill, which for FDA, which, you know, is a separate discussion for another day, but yeah. still yeah. has to be done. So. Yeah. Next, we're going to look at an upcoming rare event at the FDA, a second advisory committee meeting during the review of an application. Amelix, which is awaiting a decision on its proposed ALS treatment AMX0035, announced this week that the FDA is going to have a second advisory committee meeting to discuss additional analyses of data from its clinical studies. The company submitted the information and it was considered a major amendment, which triggered a gold date extension. Just to reiterate, a second adcom during the initial review of an application hardly ever happens. Usually the second meeting is after the complete response letter or and a resubmission. In this case, the first committee meeting resulted in a 6-4 vote against approval, and the second, the second meeting should provide another window into how the agency is thinking about this application, as well as offer patients and advocates another chance to push for the product's approval, which is what turned out to be a, a big deal the last time. One of the things we considered in the story was whether the meeting was a result of a learned lesson from the Agihome experience. I've already seen a tweet saying that the only thing AMX0035 and Agihome have in common is letter A, but I'm curious what you all think of all this. It's hard for me in my mind to not see this meeting as a potential response to Agihome and the criticism FDA got for basically you know, going with the accelerated approval pathway there after Ray explicitly telling their advisory panel they weren't going to do that. So I think here, they're, I my guess is they're thinking if there's something new in this reanalysis or this new analysis that sh um, that they sort of owe it to the committee to bring that in front of them and get their advice before doing something for kind of the public transparency part of it. I don't know, it's hard to say, does it suggest the agency is more positive on the drug or negative on the drug? It's hard for me to imagine if they were still sort of in agreement with the committee or their past preview documents for that, or the, you know, FDA's past statements and their preview documents ahead of that committee, they would call this advisory committee. So maybe it suggests to me they've changed their mind somewhat, but want to get some input. But um, 
I mean, I do sort of agree, like, right, we don't necessarily think this is a case where they're going to, like, change their mind on whether it should be an accelerated approval. And there's certainly two different diseases with very different disease courses and populations and so forth. So, um, but it's, it's hard to separate the fact that, like, maybe they're, they're, you know, have taken a transparency lesson from Aduhelm, at least here. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right, Sarah, that if they uh, didn't want to approve the product, and obviously they still have to do finish the uh, review of the new materials, but if they were disinclined to uh, to change their minds, they would not go through the hassle of uh, uh, of, a, of, a, of an advisor committee that was already negative. So uh, it's only it's only good news for the uh, the product, I'd say, and you know I'd say good news for the process too that there are sort of kind of a, being uh, increasingly open about their decision making for uh, you know um, both the companies and uh, other stakeholders to see uh, how they uh, how they make uh, how they handle new new data. Yeah, I'm. I'm not going to complain about you know additional transparency. I mean, this this could actually just be a function of the actual application. I mean, where they they got more, they have more analysis or reanalysis or whatever you want to call it, and they just want some more input on what it is. I mean, that that it could be as simple as that. You know, it, rather than you know necessarily you know necessarily wanting to be you know not wanting to you know, reverse course and and have to answer all those questions, you know, again. But, um, you know, I, I, I'm curious to see how the committee reacts to this, too, as well as the FDA. I mean, you know, the, they they have to know that, you know, they, they're going to have their previous vote in mind and that when they, when they, you know, see these, you know, whatever information they have um, now and, you know, are going to be lobbied probably pretty heavily to, change their mind or at least, you know, give positive, you know, positive uh, feedback on this. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see how the, you know, if if the attitudes, you know, of the committee change as a result of this or or just, you know, through the discussion. Right. I mean, that's, you know, it's, it's the uh, the uh, evidence of a supple mind is that you kind of change your uh, um, uh, outlook based on new information. So that's certainly uh, um possible that it could happen. I know you said at the uh, outset, uh, Derek, that there's hardly any precedents. Uh, provision policies, uh, uh, Mike McCann has a, uh, a piece for us. Uh, um, I guess it went out in the, the email uh, uh, this morning uh, uh, talking about some precedents from the 90s or quasi-precedents, he calls them. Sort of, There was a, a Cognix and uh, Redux both had multiple advisor committees uh, um, in, their, uh, their, in, a, in a single review round. So uh, neither one of them was ended up being as successful, so not great for the uh, for the positive precedent idea. But there are there are some other examples. Yeah, and I think one of them was they the the committee like I mean, this just shows how the committee process has changed. They I think they they met until like ten o'clock at night when they adjourned, and it seemed like they adjourned because of exhaustion because they didn't they didn't finish, and it was just kind of like and so they called them back to you know to to have another meeting. It was. Just, I, I can't see that happening again this time. And there was another one where a bunch of people had to leave to catch flights. So the vote was kind of not really what it could have been if everyone was still in the room. So it was, it was yeah, definitely it was, a different it was situation. A, a, a different era. The, I remember you know, they, they did not put the uh, the briefing documents out beforehand. So you uh, you spent most of the morning trying to figure out what is this you know trial acronym they're talking about? Which trial is that? And sort of so it was uh, very interesting. Yeah. So. 
Yeah, this is sort of an aside, I guess, but I, I would think that pairs would appreciate any additional transparency or discussion of the data that will take place in, in a second meeting. Um, I know this isn't sort of a formal response to, you know, the idea that that uh, CMS's needs weren't met by the Agile Health <laughs> um, data, but I, I think it could be a helpful um, thing in this case. Yeah, that's something you that yeah I, I didn't you reminded me of, and I know there there's been a push in Congress to kind of make them talk to each other, um, you know. Yeah prior to decisions, you know, so, you know, as like Dr. Califf likes to call it, so there, there's like a handoff in that relay race instead of just dropping the baton and letting someone else just go and pick it up, you know, so to speak. So, yeah, additional discussion would probably be help, especially if it's moving in the right direction as some of the, you know, some of the, the prognosticators like to think, so. Finally, we're going to revisit the continuing saga of the preterm birth drug McKenna. Plans for the hearing to discuss the withdrawal of its accelerated approval continue to move forward. And in the most recent development, McKenna's owner, Covis Pharma, asked that discussion and a voting question on its confirmatory trial be eliminated. The company decided to stipulate that the committee would vote that the results do not verify a benefit of the product. The move suggests the company wants to shift the focus away from discussions that could overwhelm its efforts to entice the committee to save the product. Wondering what you all think of this strategy. Do you does it make sense to say, yeah, that's okay. We don't need to we don't need to vote on that. I I mean I can go either way. I do see how eliminating this vote could shift some headlines potentially um, in a positive direction, somewhat perhaps for the drug, particularly when you're thinking about kind of like more mainstream coverage of it. And you know, people that aren't paying as close attention to the intricacies going on here. But on the other hand, it's almost like it's it is this admission, right? This clear, frank admission is sort of by the company that they their confirmatory study was not successful um, <laughs> and didn't meet right that criteria in terms of confirming the benefit FDA wanted to convert the drug to a full approval. So, you know, it's, to to another extent, it sort of puts them, I mean, I guess it doesn't change the fact whether they have the question or not, but it shows sort of the the difficult hill McKenna has to climb, I think, it, to some degree to say, look, we didn't meet sort of the basic kind of criteria to keep our product on the market, but yet we still think you should let us keep it on the market. <laughs> yeah, it's like, here are all these other reasons why, you know, everything is fine. <laughs> we'll stipulate to that. But here are all the other reasons why everything is fine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it does, uh, you know, present FDA with this uh, dilemma, you know, that we've been uh, dealing with, with uh, you know, both uh, uh, Agihelm to a certain degree and, uh, um, uh, you know, McKenna, McKenna here is that sort of, you know, how long do you give a sponsor to confirm the, you know, uh, results of uh uh, um, you know, uh, of a uh, of a of a trial that sort of you used for accelerated approval. You know, with uh, um, you know, Agile Health they were criticized for it uh, for giving them uh, you know this uh, uh, you know nine year runway, and uh, you know, uh, Biogen's now sort of shortened that uh, uh, fairly significantly. Uh, um, and we'll see how that goes. But uh, you know, in the, um, in this case, they um, the company did a trial and it didn't work. And you know, uh, you know how many. Uh, how many chances does a company uh, 
does the company get? And uh, um, you know, that that's for kind of the uh, um, the more philosophical question is if uh, you know FDA uh, let's uh, let's McKenna just do another whole other studies for kind of for the for the next product with a uh, with a failed confirmatory trial. Why don't they get another uh, do over if they want to too? And for kind of what are the uh, um, the guardrails on that kind of thing to uh, to make accelerated approvals were kind of uh, meaningful. You have to at some point uh, decide we will pull a product if it doesn't uh, confirm benefit. But uh, um, do you pull that after the first failed trial or the second failed trial or the third failed trial? Or kind of what uh, um, what is the uh, what is the stopping point there? Yeah, it's hard to <clears throat> it's hard to gauge. You know what you know you can't really draw. I don't think a bright line. And that's that's probably part of the problem here is you can't say like, OK, you fail one, you're done or you fail two, you're done. You know, so it's 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 going to be an interesting issue if, you know, going case by case as they try and navigate this. But um, especially if we if, if they make changes to the accelerated approval process and withdrawals become easier and we go through this process a little more often, it, it could be uh yeah, you know, interesting arguments will be made uh, in terms of, you know, who deserves another chance and who doesn't. Another interesting problem for the FDA is that personnel changes have made it unclear who's going to make the final decision in the McKenna case. Selena Witten has been named the hearing officer, but chief scientist Denise Hinton had been tapped to make the decision. Hinton left the FDA last year, leaving Jacqueline O'Shaughnessy as the acting chief scientist. And then just recently, Commissioner Robert Califf announced that um, Nanji Bumpus would be the new chief scientist. And the FDA told us that they haven't determined who's going to oversee this whole thing. So could this end up in Dr. Califf's hands? Maybe Principal Deputy Commissioner Janet Woodcock? Sounds kind of like that could be interesting. What do you all think? I, I, I suspect it will not be that interesting, uh, uh, Derek, but sort of kind of where they end up uh, <laughs> Um, assigning it will uh, um, will be significant, but perhaps uh, uh, not as tantalizing as you're hoping it would be. <laughs> I mean, I think we we sort of know from past precedent that Califf is probably going to try and stay out of this, I would presume, um, based on um, thinking of like how he handled the Sarepta decision and things where he tried to sort of defer to this career sort of scientists um, previously. And then, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not necessarily sure for the, they'd want to bring Wilcock. And I, I think this the FDA's hesitancy to say who's going to do it may just be some of the sort of unknowns around hiring right now and getting certain people up to speed and in position. Um, so, yeah, I think it, it may not be quite as exciting <laughs> as you might hope. Yeah, that would probably prompt some, uh, some more uh, filings and delays if they started naming you know, people in the commissioner's office to be in charge of this. Um, but and nonetheless, it's still interesting to contemplate. Well, that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this in previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to the Pink Sheet Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith, Kathy Kelly, and Matt Hobbs. Stay safe, get vaccinated, and we'll see you next time.